I am an inadequate mother. This is the thought that ran through my head for, oh, about 18 years with my son and um, about 14 years with my daughter. The persistent thoughts of not enoughness were put on steroids when some of my fellow moms would make fresh baking for their little angels every day when they came home from school. There were warm muffins or an apple crumble waiting. And I was busy doing other things. Baking with my gingham apron on was the last thing on my mind. If you've ever felt that you are an inadequate mother, this episode unpacks where that bull dookie comes from and what we can do about it. Hello and welcome to Enough, the podcast. I'm your host, Mandy Leto. This show is a mashup of inspiration and exploration around what gets in the way of us feeling good enough. If you're a leader whose life looks shiny and together from the outside, but inside your inner critic assures you that you are one hot mess, this podcast is for you. It's time to own your worth, quirks, foibles, imperfections, and all. Welcome to Enough. I've got Dr. Sophie Brock on the other mic today. She is a motherhood studies sociologist, and I want to geek out with her to help us understand more about how some of these beliefs and conditioning, how does this happen? How are we exposed to it at a young age? And how does it start to kind of unconsciously guide our lives? I want to have these deeper conversations so that you can understand that it's not anything you're doing wrong if you feel a sense of inadequacy or if you're not quite measuring up to your friends as a mother, for example. It's not on you. I want to go deeper, right to the foundations of this stuff. And Dr. Sophie is going to start off by telling us where does this good mother myth actually come from? This is referred to in a number of different ways in literature and um, it will resonate with different people. So the perfect mother myth or the good mother concept, um, the super mom myth, and what they're all getting at is the ways that we have set on a pedestal, a particular way of being as a mother that is seen to be the right way, the way that is best for our children and the way that we should be. So it sets the standard that we measure ourselves against. And so when you say things to yourself like, I am not a good enough mom. I'm not doing a good enough job. Good good enough according to whom? Good enough according to what? And when we first answer that response, you mentioned comparing yourself with your friends. And that's one way this can play out, right? And going, well, she wouldn't do things like this, or I'm not as good at, at her at this, right? So we're comparing ourselves directly with those that we know. We can also be comparing ourselves with our own mother, Uh, with other maternal figures that we've experienced in our lives. We can be comparing ourselves with people from social media that we follow, Uh, people who are fictional characters, right, in novels or in movies or TV shows. Uh, But most of the time when we're saying, I don't feel good enough, 
that immediate feeling doesn't necessarily come from the direct comparison. That can sometimes be the afterthought of explanation. And the reason why sometimes the sense of not feeling good enough can be associated with then guilt and shame is because the extent to which we have internalized and taken on this belief as part of our identity, as part of how we see ourselves. And it can be a way of trying to berate ourselves into becoming better and who doesn't want to be a better mum, right? So the ways that this plays out um, are really complex and they start from, I know you've had conversations before around good girl conditioning. They start from when we're children ourselves and we are led to believe a particular image around what a mother is and should be. Okay, I hope that makes a little bit more sense. I asked her to take us even deeper into understanding what does this look like structurally? So if she could kind of summarize everything she's done in her doctorate and all the copious reading that she's done to help us in three minutes or less, no pressure, Sophie, to understand how is this baked in to the society and to the structure that we know. Here's what she says. If listeners want to conjure up an image in their mind of a round glass bowl and think of this bowl as representing society, that's representing the context that you live within. So whatever that means for you, you might associate that to mean your community locally where you live. You may associate it to mean something more broadly um, if you're embedded within global networks, like you're on social media a lot and have connections through there. It's where you live. It's your life. And that we can think about as like the fish tank that we're swimming within. So we're the fish inside that tank and thinking about this, my work focuses on mothers, but you could think about this for all individuals, that we live within a particular context that sets up expectations for what it means to be a human in your context, right? Whether you're a mother, a father, uh, you know, a CEO, like whatever it means, whatever roles that you take on, there are particular shoulds attached to those roles. And so when we're in that fish tank and where these fish swimming around, we can look up on the tank and see all of the expectations written there around what a good mother should mean. And a way that you can start to unpack this for yourself is to get out a sheet of paper and write down whatever resonates, either a good mother is or a perfect mum is, and just start writing out all of the things that come to mind. And some of the things can look like she has limited screen time for her children, right? She might bake from scratch. She may be a stay-at-home mother, or she may be a mother who is engaged in paid work, right? She can provide for her children in a particular way. She's likely married in a heterosexual relationship. The perfect mother put on the pedestal is also usually white. She's usually middle class. She's usually able-bodied. She has children who don't have additional needs and disabilities. So, you know, I could rattle off a huge long list of all of the things that go into that shooting. But the thing is, is that we often don't recognize this. We've taken it on as part of our own belief system because it's how we've been socialized. And so when you're within the tank, it's actually really hard to make that visible sometimes. And that's part of what my work uh, does. And that's what I hope people take from this conversation to know that we live in a particular context. And that context is really pivotal in shaping our beliefs about ourselves others and the world around us. So that's a kind of basic breaking down of how the individual and society are in relationship with each other. Hmm, isn't that interesting? Now I can't 
unsee that there's a tank and that I'm a fish swimming in it with other fish who don't know that they're in the tank. And now I know I'm in the tank. So this is quite interesting because I'm hoping that you can't now unsee that you're also here. There's a whole socialization process going on, a whole conditioning process of how we've learned to internalize these beliefs that we now self-police and self-flagellate ourselves for. So do you see what I mean here? It's not just that your inadequate parenting, air quotes, needs fixing by you buying another book or doing another course. Of course, we want to be the best possible mums that we can, but I just want to broaden our awareness of what's actually at play here. So what happens when we're around other people who are policing us and judging us who don't know that they're in the tank? Let's find out. Basically, if we think about this tank, right, in order for it to be maintained and for it not to collapse, the fish inside or the people in, inside of that society need to be in cooperation and understanding and behave according to the constraints that are placed upon us. Because if we were to start realizing them for what they are, we were to start challenging and questioning them. I talk about this sometimes in terms of ramming the tank, right? We would start swimming towards that and saying, hey, we're going to do something different here. We're, we're actually going to start exploring new pathways to swim. We're going to start challenging the context that we're placed within and the shoots that are placed on us. And that means that we can actually be a threat to the system. We can be a threat to the context that we live within. We can potentially be a threat to others, right? If the reclaiming of our own power requires a redistribution of power and we can start to try and ram the tank in ways that can be threatening to others who don't know they're in the tank. So think about this, a practical example, right? In If you're a mother and you're really feeling um, the pressure and the shoulds around going back to work, say, and you have a lot of questions coming at you around, wouldn't your child benefit from daycare and the socialization? And aren't you bored at home? And what do you even do all day? And you start getting these these external pressures, and they are also internalized in thinking, am I doing enough? What example am I setting? Am I worthy? I'm not bringing in as much income now as I was pre-motherhood. What does that mean for me and the value of who I am? And if we were to wrestle with that and we were to go through a process of unpacking that, and, and we might get to different places according to who we're talking to, right? But taking in this example, we get to the place of saying, actually, I'm opting out of the paid workforce for now, for the next year, two years, whatever it may be. And this is my decision and I am solid in that. And I can see the shoots and the pressures that are coming at me, but I'm actively resisting them and I'm claiming the truth that is aligned for me. Okay. And when we are clear about that and we come into alignment with that, that can be very unsettling for others who have not wrestled or grappled with claiming their truth for them because they can look at us and say, what do you think you're doing? What do you think you're doing resisting this system that I am also living within but haven't recognized? And so these little fish starting to ram that tank, right? The other fish look around and like, please stop, please quieten down, please comply, get back into line. What are you doing? And so in this kind of, you know, you talk about it as the, the journey to enoughness or the path to that way, that can also be peppered with lots of different obstacles because the system as it stands actually functions off us seeing it, not being able to see it, right? It functions off yeah, us. Yeah, we need to collude with it. 
That's well, that's right. Yeah. Otherwise, and I mean, this is how social change happens, right? Is in, in not only the arena that we're talking about here, but in lots of other different um, social contexts and social justice pursuits. It's about actually being able to uh, gain momentum, come into connection with, um, and to be able to start pushing back against some of the ways that things are you know, taken for granted as common sense and just the way that things are. So, Dr. Sophie is about to tell us why it's so easy for us to judge one another as mothers. Why we fall into comparisonitis. Me with the baking mother, me with the sitting in the car teaching Mandarin at 7.30 in the morning before school starts mother, me with the I don't take my kid to enough activities mother. All of these things that we do, she explains a little bit where this comes from. And you imagine right in the middle of the tank, there's this guard tower. And so that's where this security guard is. That's where that, that prison officer is. And we're all dotted around the edge of this fish tank, right, as the so-called prisoners in, in this structure. And that guard is looking out for us to make sure we're following the rules. And what happens after a while of living within a system like this, which is all of us living in our society, we start to internalise the rules. So the guard doesn't really need to yell out at us what to do. And as a reminder, we already know. We place it on ourselves. So we can just put a big sheet over that guard in the middle. He can go on a lunch break. And the so-called prisoners in this system are still going to be performing according to the rules. And on top of this, we will police each other. So someone else starts to get out of line or starts to challenge or push the rules, we will try and pull them back into line and say, hey, you're not living according to the shoulds of our system. Get yourself back into line. And this can be where a lot of experiences of judgment and comparison and competition can come in as well. And so all of this is a function of being able to perpetuate and uphold the system as it is, right? Because otherwise there'd be too many cracks start to form and it would then be under threat of collapsing or needing to take a new shape. I remember having a really judgy mothering moment when I was in the supermarket when my daughter was a toddler. She put something in the shopping trolley that I didn't notice, I didn't want it. A few aisles down, I noticed the item and then I put it back on the shelf. But what triggered her wobbler was not that I took it out, but that I put it in the wrong place. So she at that stage was in a full-blown tantrum and putting the item in the right place didn't make any difference. And I felt the weight of the world on me as people were looking down their nose or somebody a few aisles down screamed, shut up. And there were some elderly women who were looking down their noses at me like red laser beams coming out of their eyes, signaling that I was inadequate. Control your child was the subtext. And I abandoned my shopping trolley without the dinner that I was purchasing. And I felt so small and out of control so I wanted Dr. Sophie to give us some ideas of how we can take our control back when we're in those triggered moments when we don't feel good enough. So Dr. Sophie, what you got for us? A way to actually start to go, okay, how can I shift the reality here? How can I start becoming aware of my socialization to move towards changing my experience of my life is to sit with a conversation like this and think about what it brings up for you to get out a sheet of paper and write down all of the expectations 
that you believe are part of what it means to be a mother or whatever other role you're focusing on and really examining that list and circling the things that you feel are values, the things that you feel are really really important to you. You're, they're not just on there because you've been told that they should be on there. Actually question how much you care about each of those things and circle them and then go through and cross out the things that you feel you can let go of. And starting with a simple exercise like that can be the first way of opening our awareness, right? Because it's a perspective shift. That's what we're moving towards here. It's about being able to make that fish tank visible, and then to be able to go, okay, how can I start to cultivate and practice a perspective shift that will allow me to notice in the moment when I'm starting to experience that little security guard on my shoulder, when I'm starting to experience one of those shoulds that I'm placing on myself. And that awareness and that consciousness raising is how we make those little breaks. And those little breaks over time become little shifts and they build momentum into broader shifts of changing our perspective of ourselves. And that therefore changes how we experience our lives. What Sophie's saying here really reminds me of what Christina Glickman was talking about in the previous episode on getting super clear about whose opinions in your life matter. What actually is important to you? How are you choosing to intentionally live on your own terms? And it does not, in my case, involve the opinion of the dude three aisles down screaming, shut up to my screaming child. His opinion doesn't matter. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't get triggered by these moments, but what I'm hearing Sophie say is that we can learn to start practicing regulating ourselves when we know what truly matters to us. She's gonna share with us what we can do when we're hooked and having that meltdown moment, how we can bring our nervous system back into regulation to make a better choice. Let's go. Well, in the heat of a moment like that, when we're, our nervous system is dysregulated and we're kind of triggered into fight, flight or freeze, I would say that always the things to bring in there are always like circuit breakers. So basically doing whatever you need to do in that moment to bring yourself back into a regulated um, state. And because we can't really do this consciousness thinking work when we're in heightened stress states like that. So I would also just say that with compassion, because sometimes we can then put a lot of pressure on ourselves to try and make these big shifts in our literary experience. And then we encounter a situation like this and we're like, ah, oh, I'm just succumbing to the security guard again, you know? So, so saying, saying that also then going, what meaning am I making or am I attaching to other people's perceptions of me? So the people who are looking at you and saying, get your child un under control, what are we making that mean about ourselves? And where is that sticking to us, right? Like what have we got within us as a belief that we're holding that that sense of judgment attaches itself to? So instead of us needing to try and make that judgment go away because we don't actually have control over that, right? How can we become more empowered it's not through asking that situation to go away and say, well, I'm just not taking my child shopping anymore. Well, I'll just do whatever I need to do to complicate them. It's about saying, okay, how can I examine what's going on within me 
that that judgment's sticking to and how can I support myself to become more solid and anchored in my perception and my understanding of who I am as a woman and as a mother and what I feel confident in holding with my child in this situation. Because for some of us, it may be that actually it does mean leaving the supermarket, right? In a situation like that, that's too much for us to deal with and we don't feel comfortable doing so in a public space. And that's okay too. Um, Others, it may be about going, you know what? That's theirs to carry. I wonder the ways that those women who were judging you, I wonder all of the ways in which they were judged, even perhaps more harshly, right? It's, it's taking them, hearing your child lose it, it's taking them back to their own experience of when that has happened, right? But perhaps unconsciously, right? And in order to keep you, the fish, in line, they need to try and touch you, right? They need to remind you of the rules, like pull it back into line, get back into place. And this is um, evident with generational differences too, because that tank changes according to generations. And this is why there can be that disjuncture there. But also being able to see that with compassion, right? And saying that their value system does not have to be ours and that that's okay. And that leaves space, I think, for actually connection through that disconnection, right? And going, I don't need you to change your opinion of me. Um, I can actually anchor into my grounding of my values and my self-worth. And I don't need your approval for how good or not of a mother I am. I had a dear friend who would bake chocolate chip cookies for her kids when they came home from school every day. And I remember going to her house and it smelled so lovely in there. And then they'd all sit together and do homework at the kitchen table. And I remember coming home and feeling so inadequate because our house didn't smell like baking. And I was running two businesses and recovering from burnout. And all I could repeat in my head over and over was, you're inadequate, you're inadequate, your kids are not growing up with good memories. (laughs) And I beat myself up about that for such a long time. So I wanted Sophie to explain to us a little bit about guilt and a little bit about resentment and the roles that those play in our mothering and what we can do to step out of guilt. I wasn't expecting what she had to say about the importance of guilt as an emotion. I would actually say in in a lot of ways that guilt is a really self-focused emotion and that when we stay in a place of guilt, we're actually stripping our children of the presence that we probably yearn to give to them. So how this can look, um, in example, with the cookies, right? You may feel really guilty that they come home and that you haven't baked them cookies. And I know this is, you know, we could use a million different examples, but like this is a tangible one to dig into. And we say, we're thinking in our mind, all of these expectations, like my friend does this and we may be making extra meaning out of that, right? Like my friend does this and, and her son is really close to her and I'm feeling really disconnected with my son at the moment. And maybe it's because her son knows that she really cares for him because she makes these cookies. Like we can go into all of these the other house stories. smells lovely when he comes home and there's that whole kind of fantasy domestic bliss thing. Like you open the door and it smells of fresh baking, something or other. Yeah. So it's like, and we it's can- the fantasy, right? It's the fantasy and we go into the future with that fantasy too. So like, I want my children to remember the smell of the house when they become older. You know, when my son's 45, I want him to walk into a house that smells like cookies and then remember his childhood. Like we can be going three decades into the future in our present right now. And what's that doing? That is placing a 
a lifetime's worth of pressure on our shoulders in this moment, in the afternoon, when we're just trying to get through the afternoon to dinner and bed, right? So we are carrying an enormous load by doing that. We can also basically do the same thing by going into the past as well and going, but I remember how it was on that particular day when I did get it right and see, I can do it. So why can I do it now? And on and on we could go. Um, But coming back to um, the guilt, because I think we need to be able to break the association that we probably are carrying unconsciously around guilt proving our worth and value as mothers because when we stain that guilt of going oh I didn't bake the cookies and the kids are home now and we sit in that guilt what does guilt motivate us to do guilt motivates us to go how are you going to be better how are you going to do more sometimes this is useful we don't want to get rid of guilt it's actually really important for us to be able to feel guilt as an emotion and getting rid of guilt is not the answer because guilt can be like a little red flag for our values, right? If we're perpetually feeling guilty about something, well, what are we going to do with that? Let's shift it. Maybe it's actually there to teach us something. So how can we get curious about that? Maybe the cookies is a really strong value for us. So what's getting in the way at the moment for us living out and fulfilling that so-called value, right? Um, but part of what guilt can do is it means we can loosen our boundaries because they've come home. You haven't baked the cookies. You're feeling bad about yourself. You're, I'm not good enough in yourself and your child, let's think of an example, asked to play video games. There's a rule, no video games after school, but now you're feeling really guilty because you haven't made those cookies and you've had this whole dialogue in your head about what that's going to mean when your child's 45 and brings grandkids over And so we can be motivated to loosen and relax our boundaries a little bit to compensate for the guilt that we're feeling and to try and make ourselves feel better, actually. Um, But we, we frame it as in making our children feel better. And so we can loosen our boundaries a bit. And what happens over time in motherhood when we do this, we say yes when we want to say no. We stay a little bit longer when we want to actually leave. We start shifting our behavior in ways that create more and more disconnection between how we actually feel and what we actually want and desire and believe and what we actually do. And when we do that repeatedly over time, this could be over time of a day, a week, a month, a year, we start to have a low level simmering of resentment because it feels unjust and when we're out of disconnection with ourselves, it feels, it feels as though we're not able to live our lives, right? Whose life are we living here? And that simmering and underlying of resentment sort of sits there and bubbles away. And then we get a trigger. And so the trigger could be a comment that our partners made when they've walked in the door. A trigger could mean our children saying something about, you never do this for us or whatever it may be. It could be something small. It could be something big. And what happens then when we get that trigger? We blow, right? And this is how anger and guilt are connected because we've just been carrying all of that weight of the decades worth of worry about the house smelling like cookies and every other relaxed boundary that has happened then in response to that. And then we wonder why we lose it and why we come out of disconnection with ourselves. And then what happens then? Well, good mothers don't experience anger or resentment or rage or frustration or impatience. And so I'm feeling terribly guilty again. And then on and on we go. So part of how we actually 
break this cycle is by going back to recognizing what our guilt is there to tell us. Why is it there? Why is it showing up for us? And let's use it rather than sitting and stagnating in it because that's not good for us and we're not doing our children any favors either by doing so. I love this. So this just demonstrates this insidious cycle. So do you have a final technique for us? In other words, like why is guilt showing up? What is it trying to tell us? If you're a mother listening, you're thinking, wow, yes, I experienced this cycle. What do you do? Do you dialogue with your guilt? Do you literally ask the feeling as it comes up? Like, why are you here? And what are you trying to tell me? Yeah, I would say so. If you feel as though you're in a a regulated state of mind, right, in terms of you're not flipping through that cycle really quickly and going into anger or frustration, um, doing again, going back to that shopping example, doing whatever we need to do in the moment of all different strategies. I'm sure people can gain resources around mindfulness and all sorts of um, techniques to support ourselves being embodied in our experience and calming our nervous system. Um, But then actually speaking to that guilt. And so first saying, what are you trying to say? Why are you here? What should am I experiencing? Who am I subordinating to? Who am I comparing myself to? Where? So the first thing, where is this coming from? Why are you here? The the answer to that will then depend on where we move next because it might be there because it's asking us to come into greater alignment with a value that we have. It's actually there to ask us to come into greater connection with what is truly meaningful and valuable for us. And if we find ourselves at that place, the next thing we need to ask is what is in the way of me living in alignment with that right now? And this can sometimes be pretty confronting because there can be all sorts of answers which may come up, which may feel uncomfortable, but recognizing that there's a reason why we can't. Sometimes that will be because of choices we've made or are making. We might be prioritizing other things, right? Like, going to bed super late in order to get that tiny bit of quiet time in for us, you know, and that is the reason why we don't get up in the morning and bake the the cookies, right? So questioning, well, what is it that I value here? Is it my rest or is it the smell of the the house smelling like cookies? Um, So having that as an avenue to actually get into greater connection with what it is we value and what we want, or being able to say, actually, I don't care about this as much as I thought I did. I can see all of the ways that my kid walking into the house and not smelling cookies is actually really valuable for them. I can see all of the ways that actually they would experience lots of disadvantages by walking into a house smelling like cookies, because maybe if I didn't truly want to bake those cookies, I would carry with me a sense that my kids owe me something because I bake them cookies every afternoon. Maybe that tethers my child to a sense of owing me in some way. Right. Maybe actually the best thing that I can do to support my child is spending the time I would be making the cookies, doing something that really lights me up. Okay. If it's not the, this is, this is assuming it's not the cookies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And, yeah. and maybe actually part of how to support my child into growing into a human being that is able to be connected with themselves and their wants and their desires and who they are is by being able to do that myself. And that I'm not doing my child any favors by sacrificing myself on some altar that somebody else created in order to prove my worth as a mother, because they didn't ask us to do that. They don't need us to do that. And we can actually be chaining them to an idealist perfectionist standard for themselves that they never asked for and that they won't be able to live up to either. So I ask every guest to lay a brick, a piece of wisdom, 
regarding what you've shared with us today. So what would you add? I would ask people to ask themselves, who is this for? Regardless of what is the one next step they're taking, who is this for? What purpose is it serving? And I think sometimes we get really honest with ourselves about the answer to that. We can pull back layers and layers and layers and we can kind of be left with a question mark there going, who actually is this for? What does this actually mean? Um, So I'm hoping that that question can be a catalyst for us to come into greater connection with ourselves and shake off some of those shoulds that we've been talking about here. Where can people hang out with you, Sophie? Sure. So I am on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Sophie Brock and my website, the same drsophiebrock.com. And I have a podcast, The Good Enough Mother. So those are the places that people could find me. And yeah, I'd love to connect and hear what you think about the episode. Thanks for having me, Mandy. Oh, this was so much fun. I've learned a ton. Thank you for playing with us. Thank you. I hope that if you're hard on yourself as a mother, that this episode challenged you to be so much more compassionate with yourself and also dropped your shoulders a couple of inches when you realized that this stuff is baked into the system. So cut yourself some slack, please. And while you're at it, please share this episode with somebody else who's hard on themselves as a mom, because it might give them some relief too. Next week on the pod, I have Luisa Molano, who is a transformational coach, sharing her extraordinary story of growing up in a very strict Pentecostal family and being chosen by God to marry an individual twice her age at the tender age of 17. We look back now, when she's 40, at how she's learning as a regular practice to step out of good girl conditioning. Here's a bit of what you can expect. God spoke to our pastor and he chose me to marry this man. What an honor. I have been a good girl. Like I got my good girl merit badge. And the man was 18 years older than me. And I was 17. So I literally wasn't legal. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing this episode. I look forward to sharing Louisa with you next week. And in the meantime, take good care. This is Mandy Leto signing out for Enough, the podcast.